0: and welcome to the School for CEOs Leadership Insights Podcast. My name is Gemma Soule, and my guest in today's episode is Mark Logan, who joined the School for CEOs faculty in 2020. Mark is an award-winning leader in the internet technology sector. He has been instrumental in the success of multiple award-winning tech startups, including Skyscanner, where he had the ever-evolving role of Coo and was responsible for the general management of the business. Since leaving Skyscanner in 2017, Mark's focus has been as an advisor, investor, and non-executive director across multiple startups and scale-ups in both Scotland and also internationally. In this interview, we explore his journey at Skyscanner, tackling challenges around culture, communication, and engagement in a company with an ever-evolving identity. We also talk about gender and Mark's passion for supporting women in business. And finally, his views on starting up a business during the coronavirus pandemic. I had a really great time speaking with Mark, so I hope you enjoy listening. Mark Logan, welcome to the School for CEOs podcast.
1: Thank you for having me, (laughs) Jim.
0: We've got lots to talk about today, Mark, Um, but I'd like to start at, I suppose, one of the more defining roles that you've had, uh, which was with Skyscanner. You joined Skyscanner in 2012 to take on the general management of the business uh, right up until its sale in 2017. Before we talk about the the journey, what what attracted you to Skyscanner as a business in the first place?
1: Well, you know, at the time, I'd say things attracted me and things didn't attract me in kind of equal measure. Um, Skyscanner then was a was a, a pretty small company. What attracted me was it, it just really compelling product proposition that if things were done in the right way, could be globally impactful and could really uh, really create a, 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 a long lasting legacy and example for what Scottish software companies could could do in the world. Um, At that time though, in common with many companies at that stage, you know, companies either don't have a product that the market wants or they they do, but the organization isn't able to scale to support that uh, product. And at the time, I guess, you know, going back several years now, Skyscanner had a bit of a reputation for not being a great place to to work or not being a great place to join as a senior leader because it was struggling to, uh, you know, to to scale the business to absorb new management talents and figure out structures and processes because nobody had done that before who was in the organization it's a very very common startup problem where things go well for a while the product's strong but you you hit these inflection points where everything seems to break and people get annoyed with each other and no one seems to know what to do so externally you know i was aware that, that 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 was the situation and um you know, I was very happy where I was working at Cisco at the time, it suited me at that point. But the conclusion I came to was that these problems were ex- interesting and exciting problems to try and be part of a team solving. And if we did solve them, then the opportunity was massive. So so really two things attracted me. One was stepping into those problems to see if I could be part of a team that could fix them. And the other was was then what we could do with that engine once we had got ourselves organizationally straightened out um you know, the final thing was there was a lot of very smart people there and I, I enjoy working with smart people so those things together made me decide to 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 give it a go if you like
0: and are you pleased you did
1: yeah um, of course it was an extraordinary journey um i, mean, I don't think i regret any any parts of my career you learn an awful lot from every single one of them and you couldn't do any future job without those those learnings so it wasn't you know i don't believe that there's a moment where you you pick the the right thing or the or you make you miss that opportunity and pick the wrong thing i think every thing you do takes you more or less to the same place by different routes now skyscanner was was a great experience for me and for my colleagues um it wasn't an easy experience you know it was it was uh Sometimes a pretty stressful experience because essentially every every three to six months we found ourselves in a different company. You know, it was twice as large as it had been before, with twice as many customers, and that that's that's difficult because it requires the senior team and indeed everybody in the business to constantly reinvent themselves, and that's quite exhausting, exhilarating but exhausting. I mean, I I, I found I learned more in Skyscanner every week than I'd have learned in many other environments every year. So it was it was pretty, you know, pretty full on. Um, and it was just, I guess the best thing was, it was really exciting being part of a small team that was partly based and certainly headquartered in Scotland, where I'd grown up, where I'd heard many people tell me over the years, you couldn't grow large tech companies in a small country like this. So it was, it was really exciting being part of a team that, you know, essentially beat Google and many other very large organizations uh, at at what we were trying to do in the markets, we were trying to do it. And and, uh, the belief that grew in the team around those experiences was, was a really nice thing to witness. Also, to do that, we had to be, you know, A, much more than the sum of our parts, and B, we needed to be much more individually than any of us had thought we could be. And seeing young people who've Unconsciously set a, a, a upper ceiling what they think they can actually do, what responsibility they can own, um, the, the the courage that they think they have, and seeing them pass through those barriers and surprise themselves, uh, you know, is probably the best part of any you know any manager's uh, experience, and, and I got a lot of a lot of uh, fulfilment from seeing that. So, yeah, that, that that was a great experience. In summary. Although some of my great hairs have undoubtedly come from that experience.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and you talk about people having to reinvent themselves um, along you know, to, to keep up with the rapid change and development of the organisation. So how much of getting the right people um, involved in the organisation is about identifying certain characteristics? Do they need to have grit? Do they need to be adaptable, flexible? And how much is about them being completely bought in and aligned with the vision and the purpose of the organisation? Or is it a bit of both?
1: Yeah, well, it's a bit of both. But, you know, it's an interesting, well, both very interesting questions. Maybe take the the kind of last one first. I think people often struggle or, or senior leaders struggle to know how to wrangle this idea of vision and how people relate to it because... You know, the reality is, I mean, I've worked in many companies where, you know, for example, I remember being in a company where the CEO would stand up and say, this is, you know, we're going to do this, we're going to change the world in this way. And looking around the room, it was a large company. I could see that people weren't really excited by that. They, they professed to be, but in their eyes, you could see it, it was somewhat simulated. And as I, as I went through the years, I saw that sort of simulation in many other places. And, and I eventually came to the Realisation that there's really two visions in play. There's a vision of the company, and there's a vision that you personally have for yourself, your own goals. Like, I don't want to generalise here, but many, many people have goals like I want to challenge myself, I want to I want to grow personally, I want to experience new things, I want to test myself, I want I want to grow in status and, and feel professionally successful. You know, that, these are very, very common missions that people have. And if you try to force people to really buy into the mission of the company, like in a a, a sort of evangelical sense, well, it's not the same mission and it only is partially effective or not effective at all. So what what we used to to do was we'd be very clear what the vision of the company was and what we're trying to achieve and the, the mission towards that. But we'd also explicitly acknowledge that everyone in the company had their own personal mission. And they weren't the same, but they were highly related. And essentially our our construct was that if you are able to, if we are able to uh, fulfill the mission of the company, then that will create a great platform vehicle for you to fulfill your own personal mission. Example, a company that's doubling in size every year, always had a leadership vacuum, always. So there's lots of opportunities for you to go and to solve those problems and take those roles. So I, I believe that when we adjusted our, you know, our discussion of these points into that kind of model, it was a lot more honest, it took away certain pressures, and I think it got a lot more engagement from people. You know, they, it's very easy to get that, oh yeah, if, I'm not entirely sure, because I'm not entirely an expert in the world travel market, but if we can do these things, then I can then fulfill my mission Um, and also I found that communicating the strategy in three slides in a very simple clear way was really important partly because if you can't do that then you don't actually know what your strategy is It's, it's still information but also because it let people align loosely I mean you know a mistake we often make in companies is for the senior team to lock ourselves in rooms for six weeks and develop strategy, build an intuition, test ideas, dump them, refine them, and then come out to the company and uh, in a 65 deck slide pack, 65 slides deck, uh, explain what the strategy is and then assume everyone's got it. But of course they haven't because it's too complicated. They're busy thinking about something else. They've got day jobs. So I find they just bring strategy down to like three slides and relentlessly communicating that, combined with this clarity on, on separation of missions and the relation between them, got people very uh, very much more engaged and uh, focused. Um, as for, you know, what qualities do people have? Well, you know, it's, it's all the things you would expect. Um, it's the, the willingness to try things and go through the embarrassment of them not working. It's the... The signing up to being an aggressive learner, because in a company that's changing so quickly, you've got to constantly be learning to keep up or ahead of what the company needs. You know, the company will grow and it will grow with you or without you. And uh, to, to keep on that particular bus, you've got to be aggressively educating yourself. And that's, that's not something everyone's prepared to, to sign up and, and, and do. Um, so those those kind of things were, were useful useful traits. The last thing I'd say is that people often stop think, thinking in business. They very quickly move from the first few days of the business where you're thinking about stuff into just acting and reacting. This, these are my activities for the day. I check and respond to email for two hours. So the people who were successful for us were the people who would stand back and, and actually rethink, you know, how, how does this business work? What is it we're trying to do? What are the key metrics? What's the equation that governs this? Are we aligned to that equation? You know, it, it, my recommendation for people would be actually try to think because it's quite tiring, so we avoid it um, for evolutionary reasons. It uses energy. But ask yourself, am I, am I really thinking in this job? And if you switch to thinking and switch to learning aggressively for the next stage, you know, what does this come look like in a year's time? How will I operate within that? Those are the people that tend to come through.
0: And I think we're all guilty of falling into that trap of getting on and doing. It's that wanting to achieve certain milestones, tick things off the to do list. But, um, yeah, yeah are there. those the right
1: milestones? You know, That's the, yeah. <laughs> the question we often don't ask. And yeah. um, often we don't even do that. We, we just focus on uh, today's activities, which is I'm going to some meetings and I'm reading some emails and I'm responding to them which is you know, kind of necessary part of life, You've got to do these things. But how much time do you spend thinking about the goals? Are they the right goals? How are we achieving them? Are we following best practice in the industry as it currently is? You know, a tiny fraction of people in a company are typically doing that. If you can make that 50% of the people in your company, you'll be dramatically more successful than other companies that don't put that effort in.
0: And obviously, um, it's one thing having people thinking, but you also have to create a culture and um, an environment where those thoughts can be shared. So a very inclusive culture. So what did you do as a leadership uh, group team to be able to take on those thoughts and ideas that were coming from those around you?
1: You know, it's a very interesting area culture. And I think the reason we struggle with culture, you see a lot of businesses that Believe they have a good culture, but then you see on Glassdoor that people hate working there, for example. Um, so I I th- I think thought of and I I think of culture as, as really three things. The the most obvious but least important one is the your perks. The how how pretty is the office? Um, is there free coke in the fridge or not? The, these things are undoubtedly nice, and they send a message that the company is going to spend money on, on its employees. But that's that's one aspect of culture. And that's that's usually where, for example, HR teams start and end. You know, they think if we get these hygiene factors right, then we've done our job, culture is good. Um, But it's not. Um, The second really important thing, I think, is creating a psychological security or psychological safety, as it's, it's often called. And what does that mean? It means that people really do work as teams. They're not actually trying to step over each other's bodies to, to get promoted and all that kind of stuff. Um, it means that the mistakes are learning exercises, so the contract is I won't make mistakes because I wasn't thinking, I'll make mistakes because I was thinking, but thinking an error, and in turn you will see that as a growth experience, not as a chance to punitively uh, you know, impact me. Um, it's, that's very rare in companies, and to me that is the the most important aspect of culture um, interesting research. Google did that uh, the most high performing teams were those who perceived it the highest psychological safety, uh, and that certainly was my experience as well. So we did quite a lot to encourage that. One simple example is um, it became obvious in one of our large teams that people were afraid to try things in case they failed because they saw failure as a negative, so we started out a thing we called fail forward which was, uh, you know, every Friday, someone would stand up and explain something they tried and why it didn't work and what they learned from it. We just tried to normalize you know, that kind of stuff. That's just one example, but, you know, it's, 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 um, it was effective. I think the final part of culture, and one is often, often forgotten, is that culture and strategy in this regard are the same thing, because culture becomes those things you do strategically that work. And... Um, an example of that would be like Microsoft. Um, at one point, you know, we all remember how massively and you know present in their world Microsoft was in the tech industry. And Microsoft learned that if you everything you did was for Windows and Office, you'd be successful. So that became the culture of the company. Everything was looked through that lens of does it put Windows and Office in a better position? Now, sometimes those cultural elements work really strongly for you, and sometimes. They certainly don't. So when, when phones came along smartphones, Microsoft still believed that everything was about Windows and Office. And, you know, as we are now all very well know, fell into decline because that was the wrong culture to have at that time. So I, I, I asked teams to think about what level of hygiene they can afford, but that's not the most important thing. Ask themselves, to what extent are they genuinely building psychological safety and security? which is not to say complacency or tolerating mediocrity. It's 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 much uh, much different from that. And also, do they understand what culture comes from strategy and is it still relevant? Th- these are the things to think about. So that's how I tried to think about it in Skyscanner. Um, and I think we had a pretty good culture um, because in the end, the test is, are you getting a lot more done than your competitors with a smaller team? And the answer is yes you're probably getting culture about right. Mm
0: -hmm. And you started hinting there at um, some of the things that you're doing now. So you're um, a non-exec on various different uh, tech startup scale ups. um, And you also spend a lot of time um, advising tech companies at, at that kind of earlier stage. So tell me a little bit about some of the work that you're doing there, some of the challenges that these businesses are having that you're helping them with.
1: Sure, so so my, my overarching philosophy for this particular stage in my life is is that, as I said earlier you know i have spent a long time in the Scottish tech scene and I've been involved in a few startups that have been successful and it, you know, all through that time, I was told by people inside Scotland and outside that this isn't where these sort of companies get born um and i I very much enjoyed being part of teams that that proved that wrong now. Now I've got, you know, it's a different stage in my, my, my life. I'm trying to, you know, join up. way, contribute to that funnel, if you like, that creates Skyscanners and similar companies. And at one end of that funnel is how we teach the subjects like computing science and, and the relationship to, to business and startups. And then you get different phases as you go from young founders emerging from university and elsewhere through to startups through to scale ups and beyond i'm just trying to kind of contribute in a small way because i'm one person but along with many others trying to contribute to many of those stages so that's why i'm i do a lot of ceo mentoring i do a lot of um advisory for companies i i've invested in a few startups and i am on the board of a few um and also, I've recently started teaching at uh, um, Glasgow University's Computing Science School, so I'm, I'm uh, a visiting professor there where I'm developing courses to to help students, if they start companies at university, be more successful, so they don't get disillusioned and leave the, the funnel, as it were. Um, and once they leave university, they're better equipped to be successful if they go into the startup world. Um, And I'm hoping that, you know, that becomes these kind of methods that traditionally aren't made open to science and engineering students, that these become embedded earlier and earlier in the curriculum so that they're more balanced in their education. Students tend to know a lot about tech, but less about business, less about product, less about getting into market. And um, therefore, if we can rebalance that, then I think we'll have more success, such as you see in Stanford, you know, Stanford University is the heart of the Silicon Valley. Was the was the the creator of the Silicon Valley essentially, and I think we've got the same opportunity with the great universities we have here to leverage those assets and create a far more equipped set of young people coming into the startup world. So um, that's what I've been trying to do in, the, in a holistic sense. The, the problems that you know, startups have I, I, usually two things. One is the They've read the Lean Startup and they understand the concepts in there. But in practice, it's very difficult to to figure out when you have product market fits and how to how to get there. And um, if you go on the internet, you'll find lots of qualitative definitions, but very few useful, practical, applicable definitions, even from the, you know, the the famous exponents of, of product market fit. And so, that, so they struggle with that and often make a lot of terrible mistakes. Because of that, another thing they struggle with is when they do start to get some success, they struggle with how to build an organisation to support that success. And much as so I was saying earlier with Sky so a lot of my work is in both of those areas: you know, figuring out how to approach product market fit and how to build an organisation to support that growth when it should be in becoming.
0: Mm-hmm. And and how was that transition um, from working at SkyScanner to what you're doing now? Because uh, you know, if, if you're working with athletes, they talk about their their pinnacle, which would be I don't know, a world record, Olympic gold, and the SkyScanner's exit. That's you know Scotland's success story um, in the tech sector. It's a unicorn, sold for one point five billion pounds um, to SeaTrip in two thousand seventeen. So. How how was that when you left in 2017 and carving out or deciding what you were going to do? Did you have a very clear idea of now you wanted to um, have impact in these small organisations working with students and entrepreneurs?
1: Yes, it's a great question, Gemma. So I, I had been thinking about it for some some time. I'd been working by that point in the in leadership positions in tech for about 20 years. And, you know, the, the the decision I had made was, I mean, frankly, I was a bit tired. And I wanted to refresh myself by doing something different. I had a number of personal projects. I, I really wanted to, I was fortunate to have the time and, and enough money to to pursue those for a bit. So I, I, I wanted to take that opportunity. Um, but it would have been very easy just to continue in Skyscanner and, or, or join another company that was the same size or bigger and continue doing the same stuff. And inertia almost carried me into doing that. And despite my best uh, efforts, I find myself, you know, speaking to to uh, recruiting people when they contacted me because I just had a certain inertia and momentum. It's what I've been doing. So, uh, I was in danger of continuing to do it. Um, and then I reflected that it's very important not to define success by what you read it should be, you know, by what other people tell you it should be. You know, you should, once you've uh, done this, you need to then go to the next level of scale and and do all that stuff. I think it's important to to find success according to what makes you feel fulfilled. And and, um, what's always fulfilled me is learning new things. And I thought I'd learn those new things faster if I switched to a a different mode. And I have learned a lot, you know, I spent a long time working in startups, but it's one thing to work in a startup Another thing to be advising a startup is just different, or to you know to work alongside VCs and see what their concerns are, um, or to reflect on you know issues like how do we create an ecosystem that that works for all startups and creates a much higher success rate in Scotland than otherwise. These are these are different and fresh things that had I just continued doing more of the same, I wouldn't have got a chance to explore. Um, so so I actually found it uh, a relatively easy transition. I think at first I had a bit of inertia, but i quickly go over that by getting engaged in the next thing. If I've learned anything in life about this, it's, uh, you know, life is full of potentialities. If you live in the past, what you did before, you, um, you stop exploring those potentialities. So we we all have a tendency to look back and, you know, narrate, then either feel good or bad or indifferent about what we've done in the past. Um, And there's certain value in reflection, of course. But I think it's really important to spend most of your energy in what next, you know, what can I learn, what can I do differently, what's interesting. And um, so I've tried to apply that and just focus on on new things. And, um, you know, I haven't regretted that at all. I felt very engaged in what I'm doing and... uh, um, I'm not sure how I want to do this. Maybe I want to go back and do something else. But but I'm enjoying uh, pursuing different different paths for sure.
0: It's interesting speaking to athletes because they almost have that same uh, fear of success as they do of failure because uh, when they reach the pinnacle and they fulfill their, their life ambition, they don't know what that there's not a clear next step. And um, they're so caught up in that in that bubble that they haven't had the time to step back and think about what else might be available to them or what else m- might they enjoy.
1: Um, yeah, yeah. I must be. I'm really uh, enjoying these associations with top athletes. I'm not going to. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to uh, compare myself. But, you know, I think the point makes a really important one, um, and you see it at personal and company levels. So, for example, you know, Tesco. Um, way back in, you know, 10 years plus, the mission for Tesco was to become the biggest supermarket in, in Europe. And that's not really, I've, I've, that's not really a great vision because, of course, they became the biggest and then suddenly had a, a crisis of the identity, in they so now what? And now what was, well, we'll just try and keep getting bigger and they got themselves into some some difficulties. And I'm, I'm convinced those are as a result of a mission that was, actually, frankly, invalid, it wasn't really a mission that to, to become the biggest, that's not really a goal. And um, I think you see other people who, uh, I mean, it, it's well known that there's stats for deaths after retirement, the biggest killer of of, of men after a certain ages retirements, <laughs> you know, I think that's, that's another product of um, not having a more dynamically applicable set of goals in your life. So for me, it was, never, it was never really a goal. It was a business goal, but it wasn't a personal goal to, you know, to be part of a team that drove Skyscanner to be as, because like, as it could be an end declare I have fulfilled my life's work. It never felt like that to me. Um, I found Skyscanner very interesting. I was very passionately committed to it because I loved working with the team of people we had. But um, I hadn't ever set that as an end state for me. Um, I, I, I tried to create a more dynamic set of goals which are heavily learning based. Because I believe that that you're having a five-year plan. I always discourage people from having a five-year plan, for example, young folks especially, because they're very fragile. You're not in control of them and it's very easy to suddenly feel you're failing because you're a few weeks behind your five-year plan. Um, anyone's five-year plan has just been trashed by COVID-19, for example. So, I, I much prefer the model of creating options for yourself you know four or five options and how do you create options well it's very simple you learn new things and if, if you can you apply them and the things you learn are sometimes adjacent to what you uh, used to do and sometimes non adjacent and um doing that creates opportunities for you so as long as you're still adding options through learning you, you never reach that that pinnacle you know it'd be entirely wrong for a footballer for example to declare that their life's goal is to become a, you know, a top footballer and win the FA Cup because at 30, they're done. So that's clearly not a good goal. It's, it's an interesting thing to have experienced along the way, but the way should be always creating new options to do valuable, useful things. Um, so, you know, I, I, I still actively learn about my industry, very actively, formally and informally. Um, but also do other things like uh, since I left SkyScanner, I, I committed myself to learning Chinese, and I had no reason for doing it other than I thought it'd be interesting. And, you know, what has that done for me so far? Well, I now have a lot of Chinese friends that I love talking to and learning about their culture. And um, I've learned a lot about what great people they are. And I've been to China to practice. So I was able to go to places in China I couldn't have gone with just English. And that was very enriching. And maybe one day I'll use that for something else, but the point is, that's a goal now to learn that to get to a reasonable level. And I'll bring in other goals at the right time. So we never, we, we never reach the top of anything. It, that's the wrong analogy. We just keep going forward, adding options, enriching ourselves. Ideally, we have, of course, we have periods where life goes against us. And we get through those and then we continue. So I'm not suggesting a utopian journey. But I think that's how to think about goals. Um, otherwise, there's a terrible, what is it? Is that um, Maya D'Angelo said? Success is its own anticlimax. And uh, I think we need to remember that when we're pursuing a very kind of simplistic, I want to be the biggest, I want to be the best, I want to be the fastest. Um, By all means, pursue those things, but don't make that your life's goal.
0: I once had a a flatmate, uh, an Australian, who wrote his uh, personal life plan, and it was 29 pages long. And he invited me to read it, and the amount of detail, in that plan was uh, frightening. It was um, down to the type of house that he was going to build and the type of car that he was going to drive by which birthday. And yeah, it was quite scary. Um,
1: Yeah, maybe that works for some people. I I just know it doesn't work for me. mm -hmm. Um, uh, Whereas trying to just learn new things and find ways to use them does. I mean, there's a famous, and I'm sure it's a cliche now, but the famous speech by Steve Jobs where he, he relates the fact that when he was at university, he dropped into calligraphy classes and didn't really know why he was doing it, but he was interested in it. And looking back once he created the the Apple Mac, which is by far the best once available and the best kind of, you know, what you see is what you get interfaces available at that time. He realized that 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 calligraphy experience had been the reason he was able to do that, along with his technical experience and Steve Woznack's technical experience, so he talked about it's impossible to join the dots ahead of time, but you look back, you join them so what does that what, what I take from that is now is always the time to be laying down new dots later you can join the dots if you haven't laid down the dots, you can't join them.
0: And if I move on to another dot, then, (laughs) Um, you've been involved, uh, you got involved, was it last year, I think, with Women's Enterprise Scotland as one of their male ambassadors. There are three of you now. Um, David, our managing partner, is one of those three as well. Tell me about what got you involved, um, or what was your motivation behind that?
1: So, a couple of things. One was I had spent um many years working in tech where women are underrepresented and the first you you know you look at that and you try and rationalize it as a young software engineer you know, why is that and at that stage there's danger as you pick up a lot of conventional uh, prejudices and say well it must be because you know, men are better at computing or it must be something so you know these, these kind of prejudices get set very early and then from then on as you go through as a woman as you go through your tech career into leadership, there's just a lot of headwinds. And I hadn't really appreciated just how many headwinds there were until I started mentoring women through to senior positions. And I got to see those firsthand. And you know, it's just, frankly, it's, it's incredibly unjust and unfair. And no society could be proud of itself operating that way. And I'm, I'm talking about not just tech, but leadership roles and other roles in, in, in general. Um, so I guess we've all got a, a, a responsibility to decide how we feel about that and what we should what we should do about it. Um, I was also quite struck by quite often a lot of a lot of people, a lot of men, for example, would declare themselves feminists and you know absolutely all for equality, but then act essentially unconsciously in misogynist ways. And that I find that quite disorientating. I'd, I'd see people I was trying to mentor through experiencing prejudice from those same people who would be the first to, you know, sign up for the Team Photograph and International Women's Day on LinkedIn. Um, so I so I got interested and annoyed and angry about the, the, the issue. And you know, it occurred to me that that we have choices around this. We can either choose to believe that removing half of our best people from society's key roles or engineering roles or other roles is, is like really dumb for society and really unjust, and we can not be proud of ourselves for that. Or we can choose to believe what beliefs we inherited as we went through our lives, which is that this is how it's supposed to be. This is a natural order for things. Women are better at some things, men are better at others, and therefore any initiatives we do to redress the balance are half-hearted they're aspirational, optional, um, sort of roles. And I think all of us when we get into adulthood owe it to ourselves to bring out those beliefs and ask ourselves consciously which ones are we going to choose to believe? Because I think that's part of the problem. We, we unconsciously work with these things and then justify them later. So what my, my view and my contribution to this particular topic is, I think as, as a member of the male half of this discussion, I, I can reach a certain audience that, that women can't because so many men, when they hear the subject of inequality and gender imbalances like, oh, you know, there you go again, you know. Um, and I think it's important that as many men as women discuss this issue and, and in more more direct terms than we currently do. So I think that's an opportunity I have. You know, I, I think if it was one thing I, was, I would ask people who, you know, both sides of this, a uh, uh, gender balance uh, to think about. It's changed the terminology you use around gender imbalance because we tend to talk in businesses about you know inclusion opportunities, diversity initiatives. These all sound very kind of fluffy and optional, frankly. But actually, what we're presiding over is a social aberration where we remove half of our best people. It's it's, it's gender ghettoisation. We take people from our society and wall them off from the same opportunities others have Uh, that's ghettoization and no society can be proud when it has ghettos in its midst. Now, if you want to really make an impact in this area as a man, for example, in a senior leadership position, bring that terminology into your business, bring it into your handbook. Our policy to reduce gender ghettoization in this business, that starts to change how people think about this. It certainly creates discussion. Um, So, I think these are the sort of things that individuals who've who've got some kind of reach and footprint, uh, if they're serious about this issue, that's what they should be talking about. Um, And if you're not sure this is a real issue, go find the the senior women in your business or the would-be senior women, sit down, shut up and listen to them and describe their experiences. And, you know, that's quite eye-opening. And if you still feel good about how things work in your company after that, then, uh, you know, we disagree.
0: So I'm hearing, open your ears, and change the language to reflect the reality of the situation.
1: Yes, absolutely. Because it, you know, if you look at the definition of ghettos, it, this is just, this is what we are practicing. You know, we we take opportunity away from certain members of society based on a, an arbitrary attribute. We deny we deny them the same experiences and, and chances to compete. Um, that you know, it's very hard. It's very hard to leave a ghetto once you're in one. And I mean, we see that for sure. Um, and you know, sometimes p- people in ghettos don't behave well to each other. You know, I've heard a lot of women say that the people who were most unhelpful to them were female colleagues. And I think the reason for that is that there's very few opportunities available because of overarching prejudices. You compete with each other for them, and that compounds the issue. People look at that and say i see that women just don't work well together and all these kind of things so i think we've got to if we're going to break out of these things which we haven't managed to break out of for decades then we're going to change how we discuss them with the right model and then that will expose these kind of behaviors in context and give us better solutions to them if we start just continue saying well you know we were aspirational and you know we want to have initiatives and and and, you know it's all very good we've added 10 percent more female directors when you only have 1% of your directors is female, that's not changing anything, hasn't changed anything. So my question to everybody who who discusses this subject is what will stop us in 10 years being in exactly the same position? Where five percent of our large company CEOs are female, where 15% of our senior leaders generally are female, where one percent of private equity flows to female founders? What what will be what are we going to do now that will make that different in 10 years? Because it hasn't changed from 10 years ago, not, not really. And it hasn't changed from 10 years prior to that. So we have to shake ourselves up on this, change the terminology. And uh, it's, we'll wait for the discussions and debates that follow from that.
0: As a linguist, I can't help to, but just sit here and nod. I think the power of language is um, hugely underestimated, and if we have the right people using the right language, the you know, you would hope that the impact could be um, magnified.
1: Well, it's interesting. You know, the Guardian newspaper recently changed all its climate terminology yes. to like climate catastrophe from mm-hmm. global warming and so on. Yeah, global heating. You those articles, yeah, you read those articles. It's very. it's a very different sense you come away with and I think we need to do the same thing here. It's an easy thing everyone can do and it reframes the issue.
0: Mm, Absolutely. Um, I'm conscious of time. Um, So as part of the close, we can't ignore the fact that we're recording this um, podcast over Zoom during the lockdown period, um, which is obviously presenting lots of challenges, but also opportunities for business. Um, So I'd like to ask you, Mark, challenge or opportunity what are you an optimist or a pessimist and if if you do see the opportunities what are they for some of the organizations that you're working with at the moment
1: so I, I in absolute honesty I, it's too early for me to be either an optimist or a pessimist here because I think this situation is just too uncertain and um, I think I think it's going to be a challenge and then opportunity, that's the sequence. The question is, how long is the challenge? Now, in a normal recession, no, no recession is the same as any other, of course, um, but a normal recession, all the opportunities lie when you come out of them. And, uh, you know, for example, businesses uh, that uh, save people money or make things more efficient inside companies uh, or what you do more with less, these businesses will all do very well as we start to come, come out of here, because of consumers, for example, are super uh, money conscious after or during a recession. So, Skyscanner back in 2008 is a really tough time in the recession, but benefited from people's desire to go on a holiday but save money when they came out of that period. And you know, other businesses like Skyscanner also did very well. So, I think the opportunities are largely there. What we don't know just now is. Is, is when those opportunities can be taken. and I think COVID is a very, very different scenario because we won't re- because it's such a dangerous pathogen. We, we can't really have returned to what we might call normal until there's a vaccine because it kills too many people and makes too many people ill and overwhelms health services very easily if we are if we, if not careful. So I think that the, the points where opportunity will arise is when we get enough treatments that are good enough and enough capacity in our health service and enough tra- tracing and tracking of people that people feel confident enough to return to some semblance of normal without worrying that they're definitely going to, to become seriously, seriously ill. You know, that could be in a few months' time, but nobody really knows. So, so I'm, I'm, you know, being completely honest, I'm not ready to declare pessimist or optimist, but every week we're learning a lot more about when those dates might be. My advice to you know companies that might or founders that might want to start or would be founders is start your business anyway just now because if you're in a very, very small startup, your costs are super low. It's just you and your co-founder. And you can look at things freshly, because for sure new opportunities will arrive in a constrained society that it's very hard for the rest of us to see. But new businesses tend to see them. So, you know, you, this is a time to be looking at those while the rest of us are still trying to shore up our our runways and our balance sheets and, and, and you know, keep things, keep the lights on. Um, the other thing is that in periods like this, you can do a lot of work that when you're operating, you don't have time to do. You know, build the automation you wanted to build, explore that idea think it through further. And it's probably no surprise that a lot of big businesses come out of these periods. Really. Amazon largely came out from the the uh, two thousand internet crash uh, airbnb uh, came from two thousand and eight so it, you know the, a lot of what those guys were doing was having time to think things through i suspect well well they weren't having to operate at scale so I think as, as a as a new founder don't, don't don't wait just get into it and start doing those things for the rest of us undoubtedly opportunities we can't even predict will exist one of them will certainly be around how you save people money and make them more efficient and effective. So if you configure your business for that, that's all to the good. But for now, it's a lot to do with hibernation and survival. You know, they say, used to say only the winners survive, but of course the the uh, phrase now is only the survivors win. So I think that's good advice. And the longer you can make that one way, the earlier you can cut costs and hunker down, um, the, the more likely you are to survive this.
0: Mark, that's been hugely insightful. Thank you very much for joining the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been great to talk to you, Gemma.
0: You've been listening to the School for CEOs Leadership Insights Podcast with me, Gemma Sowell, and guest speaker, Mark Logan. Each time I listen back to this conversation, I take away something different. And Mark has a wonderful skill of presenting solutions to complex issues in a really neat and straightforward way. But one thing I keep coming back to, which seems particularly important right now, is the need to take a break from constant activity and doing in order to make space to think. I really liked his definition of success being that which makes you feel fulfilled. So make sure that you find time to stop and reflect on what that might be for you. I also loved his analogy of laying the dots now and joining them up later. And now that we find ourselves at home under forced lockdown, perhaps we can use the opportunity to lay some dots that we might not have considered in normal times. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. If you'd like to hear other episodes, you can find our podcast through our website on www.schoolforceos.com forward slash thought hyphen leadership. It's also available across major platforms, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just search for School for CEOs Leadership Insights. Thanks for listening and see you soon.